0: You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post.
1: Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt, the specialist digital editor and podcast producer for the South China Morning Post. And as we head into an Omicron-themed festive season this week, we are witnessing a historic new level of geopolitical contest. After decades of increasing competition with the United States in economic development, science, technology, military hardware and space exploration, this week, China took its rivalry with the US to a new level. Now, the contest is much more than who has the most missiles, the fastest computers and the biggest economy. In a year celebrating the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party, in a year celebrating 70 years of the People's Republic of China and its practice of socialism with Chinese characteristics, this week Beijing unveiled a two-word concept that some of us old rock and roll fans hadn't heard for more than 13 years. That's the opening bars of the title track of the 2008 album from Guns N' Roses, Chinese Democracy, a bombastic 71-minute album variously considered as unfairly maligned or their worst album ever. Last week, Chinese Democracy was merely the postscript to the career of a bunch of drug-addled white guys in leather pants. This week, it became China's clarion call to the world to announce its system was far more democratic, far more stable, and much more representative than that of the United States. And with the events of the January 6th attempt to overthrow the very seat of American democracy and physically steal the results of a national election still under investigation, and a concerted effort by the Republican Party to deny certain American citizens the right to vote, China might just have a point. We'll be hearing from Kinling Lowe from our Beijing Bureau about the Democracy Conference and White Paper that perhaps was intended as an intellectual and ideological Sputnik moment to show up US President Joe Biden as he embarks on his two-day mass Zoom call, otherwise known as the Democracy Summit. Mark Magnier in our New York Bureau has been patiently tuned into that summit, and he's going to share with us what he's been hearing as well as what exactly can be expected from a mass gathering of people, representing the full spectrum of democracy around the world, including the self-ruled island who Washington won't support for a seat at the United Nations or the World Health Organization, but is happy to sell weapons to. But while Beijing and Washington compete for hearts and minds and the rights to the legitimacy of democracy itself, a small democratic nation-state of just under 3 million people has this week found itself the target of Beijing's extreme displeasure. Just a fortnight after he brought us his inside report on the opening of the Taiwanese representative office in the Lithuanian capital, a European correspondent, Finbar Birmingham, is back with us to report on a roller coaster week where Lithuanian manufacturers and exporters found their entire nation had been disappeared from the Chinese customs system. And you're also going to hear the moment our interview gets interrupted by a phone call from a senior Lithuanian minister, who puts it in no uncertain terms how a tiny nation who endured occupations from both Nazi Germany and the USSR feels about what's starting to look like economic coercion by a nation of 1.4 billion people. Let's get amongst it. Mark Magnier is in our New York bureau and has been tuned in to the Summit for Democracy. Mark, hello. Hello there. I'm looking at the photo that accompanies your story uh, filed just this morning on SEMP.com. I see US President Joe Biden facing a large screen filled with a checkerboard of tiny boxes filled with the faces of global leaders. Are you watching this? How is this summit actually working?
2: Well, my sister is a kindergarten teacher, and she has to do four and five-year-olds on Zoom. And she describes it as this checkerboard of tiny little boxes that are all moving like jumping beans. And it reminded me of that today. (laughs) They're so tiny that you can't see anybody. There's a huge number of them. At one point, Biden breaks off toward the end, and says, okay, we have to do the family photo now. And then they cut the press off. I have no idea how the heck they did that. There were other parts of that, too, because it's a two-day conference, right? You have over 100 leaders, heads of state, that were invited. If you gave each of them three minutes only, (laughs) this would take up most of the conference. (laughs) So they've kind of finessed that by having a few leaders who they haven't told us their identities that will, I guess, get the mic, do the karaoke themselves. And then they've had a lot of others that are in thematic panels where they put them all together and, you know, speak about a particular issue. So there's, there's breakout rooms. And of course
1: our, our audience listening, I can reasonably be assured everyone listening has been through a long zoom call at some point over the last two years and just speaking personally every morning i'm on a conference call with all the scmp editors that's only 30 people or so and even then you know someone's mic is off someone's mic is not off i can only imagine the fun and games that multiplies when there's more than 100 people speaking dozens of different languages
2: you're not kidding, and I think some of these guys are pretty senior and probably can't can't hit the mute button very well themselves. You know, I mean, editors often have big egos, but the egos that you've got with heads of state on top of everything with this Zoom situation is quite something.
1: Well, we'll let's zero in on that. We've mentioned, you know, you said some of the leaders of countries. There's more than 100 countries on the invite list I won't ask you to go through the entire list. In that photo in your story this morning, I could make out, you know, Canada's Justin Trudeau, India's Narendra Modi, South Korea's Moon Jae-in. But is it
2: just presidents and prime ministers at this summit? So the the whole organization of this thing has has been a bit topsy turvy, really. Biden uh, raised this idea at least a good year ago on the campaign trail. He really wanted to have this, and at that point the message was that after 4 years of the Trump administration with his admiration for autocratic figures that america was back and that we wanted to renew alliances so that was the premise but a year on you know biden's popularity has has fallen we've had this pretty horrendous pullout from Afghanistan. You've had these problems with other democratic allies like France uh, over the submarine deal. Then the list comes out for these hundred plus leaders, and there are a lot of people that are questionable democratic credentials. So that was part of it. Other criticism that came out was you're not bringing in enough NGOs, particularly in countries that are not in any way democratic. You know, you, you should have the representatives from autocratic countries have their NGOs that are fighting the good fight. So the, the tent became so big that we have business people, we have national leaders, we have NGOs, we have students, we have this massive, rather unfocused entity in many ways.
1: Well, hearing that from you Mark, I have to ask. Speaking of one of the bigger influences on western democracy uh in the last 40 years, was Rupert Murdoch invited?
2: I do not know. I don't I did not hear of it and I and I think I would have, but you can be sure and you know and it is in fact true that the Republican Party and many of the conservatives were absolutely sniping at this thing almost as pointedly as, as Beijing at times. So, Mark,
1: one of the early video cuts taken uh, from this summit that you would have seen, I'll just play this audio for you now.
0: Will we allow the backward slide of rights
2: and democracy to continue unchecked? Or will we, together, together, have a vision and the vision, not just a vision, the vision and courage, to once more lead the march of human progress and human freedom forward?
1: Mark how is this playing domestically within you know the american media
2: the american population well it was interesting today uh, <clears throat> during the first day of the summit in listening to the news feeds for various organizations it played maybe third it didn't even in many ways get the attention enough to for some to see the absurdity of it or the difficulties. You know, like any country, the Americans at this point are obsessed with very domestic issues. And so that's COVID, and that's some various political things that have happened today. So on that count, no. One perspective to have on this, historically, you've seen various periods where the West defends democracy, and the United States in particular, going back to the League of Nations, and then the 1930s. 20s and 30s and then immediately after the war during the cold war when we were the bastion of the free world and then and it tends to be at times when it is under threat. So it's it's probably you know when something's working relatively well you don't need to have a summit to defend it. So there's that and then I think Biden or his people were smart enough to already by the second sentence and all the way through they were sprinkling the statements with well we're not perfect we're far from perfect it's better than other types of government but it's a work in progress you know so they were trying to be very conciliatory and very quick to admit the many problems in the US democracy as well as uh, what we're seeing globally whether it's brexit whether it's the right wingers in in europe etc so You know, yeah, absolutely right. They were aware of the irony in the messaging, and I think they tried to get in front of it by admitting it straight out.
1: So let's turn to the objectives that Joe Biden has for this summit. He has three of them. uh, Countering autocracy, supporting human rights, and fighting corruption. Can you unpack a bit about this? What is he asking the representatives to commit to, or what kind of homework did he ask them to do before this summit?
2: Again, a lot of this is in reaction to criticism that he's gotten. He wants to avoid the perception that this is just a big talking shop um, and that there's no substance. And so he has called on member countries to come up with objectives, preferably those that, that can kind of have a report card. He calls this the year of action. We're in the year of action now. And so, you know, usually when you have to mention action you're worried that there won't be very much of it <laughs> but he uh, the ideal which we uh, in theory will see in the next day or so is for countries to come up with some sort of goal that they're doing whether it's to bolster their election integrity whether it is to run for a committee in the united nations that's totally dominated by authoritarian states, whether some measure of things that they can do internally or externally, and then, again, have this report card in an in-person summit to be held one year later. Now, there are problems with this, of course. There, we've seen already with the recent Environmental Climate Conference in Glasgow, COP26, many of the pledges for international players were made a decade ago, backsliding, self-reporting problems, nothing to really hold you to the fire, especially with something as sensitive as democracy. So take it for what it's worth. That said, Biden today tried to get in front of this by uh, leading by example with his system of pledges. And so he put forth a $424 million proposal to fund various activities involving the media, involving democratic uh, protections, etc. Also, one kind of aimed at China and, and Russia is to try to bolster ways that citizens can get around internet protections as a way to put some meat on the bones, if you will, with this. Of course, two of the biggest
1: geopolitical tensions right now are in Ukraine and Taiwan. You've got tanks massing uh, on the Russian border. You've got PLA jets flying just to the south of uh, Taiwan, squadrons of them indeed. Was there any mention of either those places
2: or Russia and China in this summit? You're seeing this I think more and more both from Beijing and Washington where the object of a particular statement is very, very obvious and yet they don't mention the China word, the Russia word, or the US word. And so that was very much the case, although it wouldn't take Albert Einstein to figure out where a lot of these objectives were aimed at. I think this entire summit dovetails with a key strategy of the Biden administration in countering China, which is the mantra you've heard over and over again, to work with allies and partners in trying to come up with protections for the rule-based order. Another interesting aspect of that was just how, especially given that the effect of this could be seriously questioned, it's a big Zoom meeting and it's to be seen how much it will accomplish, but how worked up both Beijing and Moscow were about this. You know, we saw last weekend, Beijing decided to hold its own democracy forum. And by some counts, it had more players involved in the U.S. There's always a a numbers game there. And then they pulled out a white paper in which they claim that they are democratic, they're a democratic country. And uh, then they also put out another report slamming the U.S. for all its hypocrisy. So it's, it's interesting, the need to not just let this summit happen without quite a mounted propaganda effort to counter it.
1: Now you're halfway through this uh, this two day conference. Uh, normally, with events like the G20 or the G7 or the ASEAN meetings, you know, there's a statement at the end. You mentioned the family photo. I'm guessing they didn't wear the uh, the fancy ugly shirts <laughs> they wear at the end of ASEAN, <laughs> as we become used to. But there's normally a, a statement that gets generated at the end. What you know, what some might call the deliverable at the end of an event. Is there any idea about what Biden hopes to deliver at the end of this? Surely he has to have something to show to
2: say that it's not just a Zoom talk fest. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, it's hard enough as we've seen with, with G sevens or G twenties to get all the players to agree on even where the comma goes and which preposition to use, let alone, you know, over a hundred countries. So If there is something that is generated, I can imagine it will be sort of we all love democracy and some version of that without really defining what democracy is, because there are so many different flavors of it in all these countries and kind of leaving it at that. I can't imagine you'll have any sort of substantive uh, statement coming out of this.
1: So it's like a big buffet. You only judge it by the quality of what's missing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, dumpster diving. Well, indeed, Mark, uh, as I say, you're halfway through this. We'll be seeing your reports and analysis on SEB.com later tonight and, of course, across the weekend. Thank you very much for your time.
2: Thank you very much, Jared.
1: Now, if you've been a listener to our Inside China podcast, you'd be familiar with the voice of Kinling Low. She's now based in our Beijing bureau, Kinling Lowe, welcome back to the microphone.
3: Hello, it's good to be back.
1: Kinling, before we get into the International Democracy Forum held in Beijing last weekend, I just want to quickly start with you know that, that big story that's dominating. That is, A, are you seeing or hearing anything in China's state media or social media about either Biden's diplomatic boycott of the Winter Olympics or indeed Biden's Democracy Summit?
3: So following the U.S. announcement of diplomatically boycotting the Winter Olympics, we've seen Australia, Canada, and Britain also announcing that. I mean, so far from what I see on um, social media and state media, it seems that they are mostly attacking um, the U.S. in particular, instead of altogether, the other countries who have also made the same announcement. Before the official announcement of the diplomatic boycott, the temperature has already been rising and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has always been questioned by journalists, um, like how if they would retaliate and if they're prepared for this. And at that time, uh, the spokesman was already saying that actually Beijing didn't even make invitations to the U.S. And therefore, they were saying that Washington is actually making use of such narrative to hype things up when they were not even invited to the event. Even after the official announcement, this has still been the official narrative, and state media has just been following this and reporting on this quote from the ministry, and the ministry has also said that the U.S. will pay a price for this, meaning that there could be retaliation, but that hasn't been declared yet.
1: That's very interesting. Where they playing both sides of the coin, so to speak, by saying we never invited you, plus we're going to retaliate, and and, and interesting to compare the energy being put into Twitter via you know the. The state media channels from Global Times and the CGTN, in terms of trying to get in, and especially with this democracy summit, really attack the idea of American democracy.
3: Right. Actually, China has been uh, very actively stepping up its narrative on attacking what they call the US style of democracy uh, for the past. Week and also at the same time putting forward the narrative of how China is also a democracy, but it was just a different democracy than the U.S., and that the U.S. standard should not be a global standard. So this has been the whole narrative they're trying to put forward, and the way they're doing it was actually a full-on propaganda machine style. So it was from, I guess, a week ago before Democracy Summit is supposed to take place. like Universities and think tanks they have organized their own like an academic forums where they discuss like what democracy really is and how the Chinese model is working for China. So I've seen like posters and invitations of these kind of events flying all around Beijing. And then in terms of an institutional like way of doing it from the government, from what I know, they published like two statement papers. One They published last weekend, it was called a white paper, which means the government publishes a stance on things. And it's like a 28,000 Chinese worded paper on the topic called China, a democracy that works. And inside, they were talking about how their system is actually superior than that of the U.S. because they also have the election system. And they talk about how when some people in certain leadership roles were not doing well, how in the past there were examples of them being uh, removed from their positions. And of course, inside the paper, there is no mention of like independent judiciary, like media freedom, or how actually candidates were being selected. It would be a highly selected election system where I don't think anybody who has voiced against the Communist Party would ever be a candidate at first place. So that is one of the papers where China also had a press conference about it on Saturday, explaining this paper and explaining their own system to many foreign journalists who attended the press conference.
1: Kinley, can I just interrupt and say what an interesting pivot it is in the centenary year of China's Communist Party, which has always celebrated socialism with Chinese characteristics, to have a document come out that is democracy with Chinese characteristics. Can I just ask you about this international forum? Who was invited? Who is Beijing trying to message in this competing democratic model from China?
3: Actually, I believe that the target audience of this forum is quite limited because, well, for us as media, we only got the invitation to listen to this virtual summit that morning before the summit was actually supposed to convene that night. And I mean, I feel like it was quite a rushly arranged forum for media. And I mean, the fact that you invite media so last minute means that probably you they were just trying to get this task done that they also have a summit instead of you know really expecting that this narrative will go very far anyway they invited actually quite a range of speakers from a range of countries for example they've got like a former prime minister of japan former president of Chile and then also like retired officials from countries like Egypt, Croatia, actually also from Australia. It was not just I would say it was not just people from China friendly countries. But at the same time, of course, none of the speakers were really attacking directly at either Chinese or Americans system. So they were mostly just talking about like why democracy is important. And um, the only speaker who was making things very clear that it would work in favor for China was a former deputy prime minister from Russia. Um, So for his part of the speech, he was very clear in saying that um, China and Russia have better systems than the U.S. and the world should not just be following what the U.S. is proposing in terms of global values or how a government should be running.
1: Killingham fascinated that one of the comments you reported in your piece about this was from a deputy director of the Policy Research Office of the Communist Party's Central Committee, and that statement was that, quote, democracy should not be defined by US-style elections, unquote. Was there any discussion of other types of democratic models, such as you know, the, the EU, Germany or, or the Westminster style parliamentary democracy, the British exported to the likes of Canada, Australia and New Zealand?
3: Not really. I was listening to the press conference and um, I was hearing him talk. I mean, the whole press conference was uh, very directed at a China versus US style of democracy. And I don't think there were any mentions of how other countries work. I also don't think they intended to cover anyway. They were so directed at the U.S. that um, actually two days after China published that paper on how its democracy works, they published another paper on why the U.S. democracy isn't working. And so the entire paper was direct criticism of the U.S. model, direct criticism of how their election doesn't work, for example, how officials elected usually cannot deliver their promise and that democracy was only working during the campaign period and how even if voters are really disappointed, they only have a chance to vote again four years after. And so how this is actually a democracy in decline, basically.
1: And as I understand correctly, there were some pointed references or or indeed trolling of the January 6th insurrection that happened in, in Washington.
3: Right. That has always been a big point for them to hit at whenever they talk about the U.S. as a democracy. I mean, since January six, every time in state media, opinion pieces, when they aim at attacking US government system, they would put forward this example. Now, I feel like this has been a really strong narrative, really strong propaganda that works for them. Because considering how censored Chinese internet users are, at that time, those photos at Capitol Hill were basically all around Chinese state media, because it's just a so like striking image showing Chinese people how the U.S. is in decline. And that works perfect for Beijing.
1: So Kinling that's really interesting but uh, I guess another big thing we've been talking about and on the on the podcast that you used to co-host with Mimi Lau this week we speak about you know not only the diplomatic boycotts of the Beijing Olympics but the fact that the zero covid strategy being pursued by Beijing mainland China is really making it very difficult to travel into China and especially Beijing right now you've just recently returned there what's it like
3: Yeah, it's been so much trouble to go into Beijing because Beijing is obviously having their Winter Olympics in around two months' time. And the thing is, nowadays, inside the country, to go into Beijing, you at least have to get one COVID test done within 48 hours before you arrive in Beijing. And then I've heard that in different districts in Beijing, after you come in from other cities, you'll also have to get other COVID tests done. And also, if you come from a place that has had a COVID case, as in you came from an area that has had a COVID case confirmed within the 14 days before you go into Beijing, you'll basically not be allowed in. So it's very strict. I mean, Beijing has always been strict during the whole COVID period, but we are not expecting this to ease before the Olympics end so I'm not expecting to travel outside of Beijing throughout the entire winter basically
1: so lockdown in Beijing with friends uh Kinling Lo will stay in touch uh if this is the last time we speak for you before Christmas have a great Christmas uh thank you once again for dropping by the podcast
3: thank you same to you
1: you will no doubt have noticed we haven't mentioned the other geopolitical storm this week involving China and the USA. I'm talking about the diplomatic boycotts of next year's Winter Olympics in Beijing. And that's because a couple of days ago, my colleagues on the China desk and sports desk here at the SEMP got together for another great podcast collaboration.
0: Hey, I'm Jasmine, the other podcast producer of the South China Morning Post. Don't forget to check out our latest Inside China episode, This week, we've heard the U.S. announce a diplomatic boycott of the upcoming Beijing Winter Olympics, and we've seen Australia, Canada, and Britain join in. SCMP Deputy Sports Editor Josh Ball wants to remind you of one thing. The IOC won't thank us for saying this, but this is probably the the Winter Games that nobody wanted. What does a diplomatic boycott actually mean, and how does it compare to Moscow in 1980?
4: Who voluntarily takes a page out of the Jimmy Carter Foreign Policy Handbook?
0: And one more thing. Will big-name corporations sponsoring the Winter Olympics be next in line for a boycott? You're going to hear all about that on this week's Inside China, available on the podcast app that you're listening to right now.
1: It's been two weeks since we brought you a special China geopolitics podcast report from our Brussels-based correspondent, Finbar Birmingham, on the opening of the Taiwanese representative office in Vilnius, Lithuania. If you missed it, I would say it's very much worth your time to revisit it because the situation has escalated somewhat. Finbar Birmingham, I was going to start by asking you today to take us through what's happened these last few days, but I feel like I should ask you what's happened in the last few hours. Take us through it.
4: Yeah, it's it's been a crazy week. The China-Lithuania situation has escalated every day by the time people are listening to this don't really know what the state of play would be but i suppose i can give a bit of background as to what's happened this week and where we currently stand on thursday morning brussels time last week china ostensibly wiped lithuania from the customs system so if you're a lithuanian exporter you go on there and you try and fulfill your trade documentation so that you can make your orders but there was no option to select lithuania as the country of origin so essentially it's wiped you know it doesn't exist in customs terms in china this was obviously a cause of great concern i was talking to the chair of the lithuanian confederation of industries he was saying you've got people who've already sort of booked space on cargo trains and planes they've paid for all of this and they're they're accruing a lot of costs and you know so they're wondering how are they going to resolve this on tuesday there was a slight reprieve five train loads of peat mineral, which is used for soil or burning. Maybe not so much these days. We used to use it for fuel in Ireland, but I think it's illegal now. It's too toxic. They were allowed to leave Lithuania on Tuesday morning. They made their way towards China. But on Wednesday morning, the um, situation had reappeared. The disruption had continued. So basically no more exporters apart from those Lithuanian peat exporters had been able to... Um, had been able to hang on.
1: So we I come just back got an incoming Take the call, mate. Take the call. Okay. <laughs> now I'm going to jump in here and explain that at this very moment, Finbar cuts off the audio on his laptop and picks up his phone and starts speaking, nodding and furiously writing down notes. Thanks to the magic of editing, you won't get the full experience of the building tension as Jasmine and I sat here in the studio and watch this all silently play out at our end of the video call. Let's just say the minutes tick by slowly. And then. So, Finbar, we're jumping back into this interview. Listeners haven't heard the interesting 14 minute block of silence I've sat through while you took a phone call from the Lithuanian vice foreign minister. Is that correct? What's just happened? <laughs>
4: Yeah, so I was trying to get a hold of him before we spoke and then he called me while we were recording. So sorry, I had to dive off. But I mean, we're in a place here where many Lithuanian exports are being blocked from going to China. They can't import from China. And so I wanted to get his take on on what was going on. He referred to it as economic coercion that dare not speak its name because there's some stuff getting through, most stuff isn't getting through. And he sees this as a sort of, quite a smart tactic from China so that they can avoid any accusations of a blanket ban, maybe trying to avoid WTO action, you know, but when I asked him, this is Mantas Adamienis, who I mentioned when we did a report from Vilnius, you know, is, is this going to cow Lithuania into backing down on China? His, his answer was resolute. He said, absolutely not. The worst possible thing we could do now would be to start wobbling. That's a direct quote. You know, he sees that this is a sort of uh, matter of principle This guy, don't forget, as I described previously, is really one of the architects of Lithuania's hard line on China before he became a government vice minister. He was very involved in the sort of uh, Hong Kong democracy movement overseas. He was a really loud voice in the, in the sort of um, push to, you know, create this interparliamentary alliance on China, which is a sort of tough-talking inter, well, as, as a, exactly as it says, group of lawmakers from across Western and other nations, Japan as well. Yeah, anyway, the point is, like, this is is one of the driving forces in this strategy, and he has just literally told me that they're not going to back down. So this one's going to roll and roll. Where will we end up? Who knows? I mean, the EU has this morning been rebuffed in efforts to mediate. So the, the European Union delegation in Beijing reached out to the Chinese customs system to find out why Lithuania has, to all extents and purposes, been wiped from the customs system. It doesn't exist in the eyes of the of the system.
1: Some might suggest disappeared from the system, Finba.
4: Possibly, yeah. It's disappeared for sure. But anyway, they tried to get a meeting with the Chinese customs authority and they were told that no we're too busy with COVID-19, we don't have time to talk to you about this. So the EU tells me they're going to bring it to another level of the Chinese government, but whether they get any further, who knows? Look, it's it's really interesting timing. It's Thursday morning. Yesterday, I was up in Berlin, the European Commission headquarters, for the launch of the anti coercion instrument, which is a really powerful trade weapon. I should say the launch of a proposal because it's not in force yet. It will take a long time before it's ready to use. It has to be negotiated by the EU's 27 member states and by the European Parliament. But You know, this is something that would worry Beijing. This would allow the European Union to take retaliatory action for exactly this sort of situation. There are 12 possible actions the EU could take. I won't go through all of them, but some of them are traditional measures such as tariffs, you know, and quotas. Others include being banned from international procurement programs, from access to lucrative EU markets like financial services and chemicals, uh, you know, bans from EU research grants and so on. It's not aimed at China by name, but certainly the underlying subtext is is China, even though just as a point of, of history, this was originally devised as a way of countering Trump's trade tariffs. But, you know, the world has turned and now China is the big issue.
1: And just an hour or two before we recorded this particular interview, Finbar, we had a a news story on The Wires saying that China's Mm -hmm. told multinationals to sever ties with Lithuania or face being shut out of the Chinese market. Now, Reuters are calling this a China-led corporate boycott. Uh, Mm -hmm. And just, you know, you could just do a quick kind of scan on Google and find out the kinds of companies that are dealing in Lithuania and dealing in, in mainland China. You've got Gucci, you've got Marks & Spencer. For multinationals who are making products or using ingredients or using you know items in production, we're talking Philip Morris, we're talking Samsung. What comes next on this front?
4: Who knows? It's unofficial. We don't know for sure, although the Vice Foreign Minister just confirmed it to me on the phone. This is something that they see happening. I know of one French company, which is a garment maker, which has been told that the Chinese buyer essentially dropped the company because it was using, you know, raw materials or components. I wouldn't say components for clothes, but, you know, some of the inputs into the manufacturing process were sourced in Lithuania. So they were told, we're not going to buy from you anymore. You know, this was actually a few days ago. This is something that they're really worried about in Lithuania. We don't know where it will end up. Clearly, if this is proven to be true, it would be in breach of both WTO rules, but also it would be prime fodder for the EU's anti coercion instrument. The problem is, this thing's not going to be ready for probably a year, I suppose, would be an optimistic outlook. So, what can they do in the interim? I suppose they they have the sort of uh, pressure they can lean on China and sort of make statements and so on. Who knows whether that will work. But yeah, I mean, like this is spiraling every day. As I said, you know, by the time people listen to this, there'll probably be something else that we haven't discussed. So, it's keeping us on our toes.
1: As we always say, please stay tuned to our SCP.com, especially for your updates, Finbar. So let me just pivot now. The you know results of the German election, another one of the reports you filed to this podcast was about that election. Uh, there is a new chancellor has taken uh, his chair uh, in place of Angela Merkel, uh, Olaf Scholz. It's not about Olaf Scholz I'm interested in. It's about... Germany's new foreign minister who's been appointed. Can you tell us more about that?
4: Yeah, Annalena Baerbock was sworn in yesterday. She's the co-chair of the of the German Green Party. Uh, she ran for chancellor. Um, she finished third in the polls. And, you know, they had a quite strong hand to play in the coalition talks. So there's a three-way coalition, the traffic light, it's the Greens, it's the SPD with Schultz in charge, and it's the FDP, the Free Democrat Party, with Christian Lindner as the finance minister. Schultz is seen as someone who really wants to maintain the status quo on China. he sort of ran on a, on a sort of Merkel 2.0 ticket. But you've got coalition partners, both the, the Free Democrats and the Greens, who have a really different take on China. They are in their both their manifestos. They had really strong lines on Hong Kong, Taiwan, Xinjiang, forced labor, all the greatest hits. In the German coalition document, which we reported on last week, there was more than double the amount of mentions of China than there was in, in the previous coalition agreement those same issues made it into the document for the first time. So, you know, the tenor of the conversation will change. Germany's not one for revolution, so I don't think we're going to see some massive upheaval overnight. But already we've seen Baerbock float the idea of a German diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Olympics. We don't know. It's probably not going to be her decision to make in this this instance. But, you know, the fact that the new foreign minister is already discussing these things is sort of a, a shift. One thing I would point out on this front is, don't forget, in 2008, Angela Merkel then, at that point, fresh-faced three years into her role as German Chancellor, was the first world leader to boycott the Games. This was over persecution of Tibetan people, alleged that China denied, of course. But, you know, so there is some some history of, of, of Germany leading the way on a boycott. Obviously, we've seen other countries come out first this time. Wouldn't rule it out, but, you know, Schultz doesn't seem like the man who really wants to rock the boat.
1: Fidbar, Birmingham, you got out of bed early this morning in your pyjamas to uh, file a couple of reports and some fairly provocative tweets of what was happening. I get the feeling you've got a big day and a big weekend ahead. Thanks for joining us. Speak to you soon.
4: Thanks, Jared. Talk soon.
1: That's all for this week. Don't forget, each Friday night, Hong Kong time, we send out the Listening Post newsletter via email. That's where Jasmine and I review the best of podcasts we're finding from this side of the world, as well as from the US, sometimes even Australia. As well, you can catch up on what we're talking about on our other podcasts, as well as photos and updates about what we're working on. And this week, I'm going to give you a peek into the high-tech setup we have for Finbar in our Brussels bureau. And by high-tech, I mean there's a bunch of fluffy pillows involved. We'll put a link for the newsletter in the description of this podcast. As always, check in regularly to the South China Morning Post website at scmp.com for all the latest news, updates, and analysis. Stay well. Speak to you next week.
2: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts?